0: Good evening church, if you would take your copy of God's Word and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Well tonight we're continuing our study through the book of Samuel, and it's a book that is turning out to be a book of of highs and lows. It began bleakly with the barrenness of Hannah and the spiritual barrenness of Israel. You remember Hophni and Phinehas, the wicked priests of Israel that marked the darkness that we saw and are seeing in Israel. But things begin to look up a little bit when we saw the birth of Samuel and, and even though he was promised and celebrated after his birth, he, it was quickly overshadowed by, by judgment and by defeat at the hand of the Philistines. We saw this especially with the capture of the ark. And we as a church, I think, have been uh, trembling as we have watched as the Lord has, has rained down judgment on his people. And not just on his people, but on the Philistines as the ark made its way through the Philistine cities. And then eventually back to Israel where God continued to pour out his judgment on his people. In chapter 7, uh, the last chapter we studied, it was something of a high mark in the book and in the life of Israel. We, we saw the people repent, which, which led, as it always does, to, to revival and safety and prosperity in Israel. But now we come to chapter 8. Some number of years has passed since the Great Awakening of Chapter Seven, and we're not really sure how many. But it was enough to say for the author that Samuel's now old, and and Israel is getting itself into more trouble by infamously rejecting Yahweh as their king. Now we're getting ready to see a radical political change in the nation of Israel as they go from being a nation that is ruled solely by God to being ruled by a series of sick, weakly, perverted human kings. But the lessons of this chapter are not merely political in their value, though who wishes our politicians would study this chapter? This chapter reveals a great deal about the nature of the human heart, about the nature of the human heart, and the human heart in the 21st century has remained fundamentally unchanged since the beginning of time. And this story, I think tonight, we will see it's working. The main idea before us tonight is this. The heart of man rejects God's rule. Even though the only alternative that exists is slavery. Will you read with me from 1 Samuel chapter 8? We'll read just the first nine verses for now. We'll read the rest later. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel To judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of a king who shall reign over them. Let's pray one more time and ask for God's blessings. Father, we need to hear from you tonight, so I pray and I plead that you would visit us with your spirit. Would you help us? I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. We want to hear. We must hear. We need to hear from you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this story in 1 Samuel 8 is a story about kingship It's a story about the throne in Israel. So I think we'd be helped if we quickly reviewed and reminded ourselves about what God has said about the concept of king and kingship to his people. Now, I've done a much more detailed survey of the biblical theology of kingship back in August, August 17th. So you you can go find that online if you want. But I think... I think that we need to do this because I think many casual readers of this chapter may forget some of what God has said about a king in, in the past. That God has promised to give Israel a king. This promise goes all the way back to Genesis 17. When God told Abraham, I will bring kings from you. Kings would come from his womb. It was a promise that was repeated multiple times throughout Genesis and on throughout the Scriptures. But it's in Deuteronomy that we get a more detailed idea of what this is supposed to look like. The key chapter here is Deuteronomy 17. And in it, God gives Israel some really specific laws about the type of king that will one day be established in Israel. And this is going to help us. So so think about this with me for a moment. The first thing he says is that the king in Israel should not be chosen by man, not be chosen by the people, but he should be chosen by God. He should be God's man. He also said that, that this king must come from among the people, From he must be one of them, an Israelite. He also said that the king should not be one who acquires a bunch of stuff. He should not acquire for himself a bunch of horses or a bunch of wives or a bunch of gold or a bunch of silver. Because we know that all those things and all the trappings of, of power, they tend to corrupt hearts, don't they? They tend to turn politicians and leaders away from righteousness. In Deuteronomy, we also read that God's intention for the king is that he must, he must be a king who keeps the law. The picture is actually beautiful. The king is supposed to take the copy of the law, take the law and make a full copy of himself for it for himself so that he can read it day and night so that he would be a man who keeps the law. And then finally, God says that this king must be humble. He must not have a heart that is lifted up. You could say he must not have a tall heart. Because the king, the king of Yahweh's choosing, must recognize that ultimately he's not really the king, but that he serves at the pleasure of the king. In other words, if we summarize all this, God's king must not be like other kings. God's king must not be like other kings. He should not be like the king, not be like a king of the nations. He should be a king like God. He should be a king like God. So all throughout Israel's history, they're they're waiting for a a king. And and if we don't understand this, then we're going to miss the anticipation that's building in the text. And the book of Samuel is ripe with this anticipation. In chapter 2, you remember that important song that Hannah sang. She, at the end of it, in verse 10, she says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. She's looking ahead to the king, the anointed, the one who is coming. So we know a king is coming. We know that a king is coming. We just don't know who. And we don't know when. And we don't know where and we don't know how. We don't know how. So all of that is an important backdrop to our story today. So what I'd like to do now is let's walk through this, this story. I'm going to give you five scenes, five general scenes that we can use to, to organize this The first scene is we come to a legitimate problem, right? There's a legitimate problem that is taking place in in the nation of Israel. It's a legitimate and it's a familiar problem, if you have followed along with us in Samuel. There's another leader, and he once again has idiot sons, right? Samuel's sons have grown up, and just like Eli's wicked sons... Samuel's sons don't walk in the ways of the Lord. In verses 1-3 through we read about them and and it reminds us of Hophni and Phinehas and and we see that they perverted justice and all that they wanted was what? Gain. They wanted for themselves. What a familiar problem. What a familiar problem for Israel and all of the offices of power since the beginning of mankind. The problem with human leaders, no matter how electable they are, is that they are human. And human hearts tend to be corrupted by money and Power. It's so interesting. The Bible says that wealth and power are dangerous. In fact, that it is hard. Jesus even says impossible for a rich man to go to heaven. So we can be, we can be sympathetic with the elder's concern, right? We don't write them off too quick. We can be sympathetic. This is a legitimate problem with real and legitimate consequences, but there's a second scene in, in this text. We, we've seen a legitimate problem, and now we have a pragmatic solution. The second scene would be a pragmatic solution. Now, let's just think about what's going on here for a moment. Samuel's sons were the ones who were next in line to judge, or to, to rule, to govern, but they were corrupt. Hmm... And plus, from Israel's perspective, they, were, they had this weird judging system, right? It, they, it, it wasn't like the, the nations around them. They had kings. And, and we've already seen that God had promised he was going to give Israel a king. So what's the problem? What is the problem with their solution? Why does God and why does Samuel respond so harshly? Is Samuel just insecure Why does God respond so harshly? God's not insecure. God clearly interprets this as a rejection of himself. Well, as we consider the text, we realize that the problem wasn't so much the request, it wasn't so much the desire itself. The problem was that it was a demand. Israel forced God's hand, the problem was their motive. It wasn't just that they wanted a human king, it's that they didn't want God as their king. Do you see the difference? As you know, I'm the father of two sweet little girls. Right now, they think I'm pretty great. Usually. I didn't check today, but they generally think I'm, I'm pretty great, and apparently they think I'm strong and funny. I love that. I really like that. I know that is coming to an end. They think I'm funny, and, and, and apparently they think I'm quite, quite wealthy, uh, but they, they think that I can protect them from anything. And they know, they, my daughters know that, that I'll provide for them, and that they can trust me as their father, but I haven't figured out a way to keep them from growing. And so I know the day is, is coming when they will no longer want me to take care of them. And they'll no longer look to me to make them laugh or to dance with them or to keep them safe. They'll want some other guy to do these things. And you know that's a good thing. I want my daughters to enjoy the joys of marriage. My wife and I—we, I, I mean—we pray for these guys. We, we, we pray for them. But the timing matters, doesn't it? I hate to admit it, I, but my girls are growing, and I know that one day they will be teenagers. But imagine with me. Let's say that my oldest daughter cares. Imagine that she is 14 years old, and she comes home from school one day and announces. Daddy, I've fallen in love, right? And I'm getting married. I met this guy online. He's really great, and he wants to marry me. He said he'll take care of me, right? But I need you to pray for him because he's kind of looking for a job. You see, he's, he's... he really wants a job with good insurance. You know how important good insurance is, right, Daddy? You know, plus, Dad, you know, the deductible on our family plan is a little bit high, and I think, you know, I think this guy can, can do better. The, you know, he's a professional video game player. He's just in between, you know, job. He's just in between tournaments right now, right? Okay, so how do you think I would respond to this? <laughs> Besides the cursing, right? I mean, how, how do you think I would respond to this? I would not respond to this well, okay? I would not respond to this well. Why? Is it because I'm opposed to the institution of marriage? No. I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to marriage. I'm not. I mean, I'm not even, believe it or not, I'm even not opposed to my daughters getting married, Right? I'm opposed to my 14-year-old daughter marrying an unemployed video gamer who aspires to get a job with better benefits than me, okay? The problem is not marriage. The problem is her desire for marriage is, is all wrong. The timing is wrong. The, the guy is wrong. The reasons are wrong. And even worse than that is that her reasons for marriage are a direct rejection of me as her father, And me as her protector. And me as her provider. You see, Israel's desire for a worldly king, a king like the nations, was a direct rejection of Yahweh. And in the face of crisis, we see that Israel once again failed to turn to God. Instead, they sought to replace God. They, they wanted to be like the world. They wanted to be like the nations. You see, to them, a hereditary, normal, crown-wearing king was, was safer. He was more practical. He was much more tangible, right? And they wanted a military king. They wanted the security that comes from, from having a king. A king, we'll read in verse 20, who, who will go out before them and fight their battles. But wait a minute. Didn't they already have someone who would go and fight their battles? Right? Did we not just read that? I mean, we, Israel has the promise, the Lord will go before you. That's a military explanation. And did they not have the promise that the Lord would be with them? And did they not, in chapter 7, just have God defeat their enemies by thundering? Right? They have a God who thunders and they win. And they want a king? They want a king who will fight their battles? God just wasn't good enough. He just wasn't good enough for them. They weren't convinced by his track record. They didn't buy into his promises. They just didn't buy it. See, Israel was a people, a special people. They were God's people, and they were tired of it. They were tired. Israel was tired of being Israel. They didn't want to feel weak anymore. They didn't want to need so much faith anymore. But aren't we the same way? You know, aren't we the same way? Don't we tend to avoid those situations where we feel weak? Where there are no other options than to just trust the Lord? Don't we struggle, I mean, functionally, to find His track record satisfying? That's why we worry. Because we don't find His track record satisfying. Don't we struggle to find His word good enough? When we face a crisis, are we content with the promise? No matter how bad the crisis is, are we content and comfortable with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What about when we are facing the darkness of fear or depression or death? Are we able to say, I will not fear because you are with me. You are with me and that's enough for me. Or do we look for a substitute comforter? Friends, where do you run when life gets hard? What do you do when the Lord calls for you and almost forces you to walk, not by sight, but by faith? You see, I think this text should remind us, if we can bridge the gap in the cultures here, this text reminds us that sin is sneaky, sin is sneaky our rejection of God yes sometimes it comes in blatant rebellion and defiance but I think usually especially for us church folks it's selective and slippery and sneaks in in subtle ways you see Samuel's wicked sons were a legitimate problem facing Israel they were a legitimate problem. But when the, elders said, uh, when the elders of Israel set out to find a solution, they forgot about God. They forgot about him. You see, church, we reject God as king whenever we look for solutions without accounting for the Lord. We reject God as king whenever we look for solutions without accounting for the Lord. God wasn't intimidated by Samuel's little sons, right? He could just kill them or convert them or or swallow them up with a fish. I mean, God can do what he needs to do, right? Church, God is not intimidated by your circumstances. He's not concerned about the largeness of your problems. Run to him. I promise he has a solution. You can trust him. Israel's sin wasn't just that they wanted the security of a king. Israel's sin was that they didn't want the security that God offered. They didn't want him. Let's keep reading in this text. Look down at verse 10 with me. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, verse 11, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and some to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and the olive orchards and give them to His servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to His officers and to His servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to His work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be His slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you had chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people of Israel refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles when Samuel had heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. This brings us to a third scene in the text, and that's God's warning ignored. God's warning ignored. You know, the lesson is really pretty simple for us here. When you go looking, looking in the wrong place, you're going to end up with the wrong results, right? That's, that's easy enough to see. In verses 10 through 18, we have the somewhat famous explanation of, of what it's like to have a king. And then, did you notice a recurring word there? What do kings do? They take, don't, don't say tax, it could. They take, they tax, right? Well, over and over we read, he'll, he'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters, fields, grains, he'll take and take and take. And God says, that's not freedom, that's slavery. That's like wanting to go back to Egypt. Oh, what a foolish rejection, because God's not like that at all, is he? He's not like that at all. You see, a king, I don't care how rich he is, he takes because he has need. Right? He needs stuff. He he needs stuff for the trappings of his kingdom. What does God need? (laughs) God doesn't need anything. And so instead of taking, what does God do? God gives. He gives. And the call of the Bible, church, especially the Psalms, is to recognize the infinite abundance of God and then run to Him whatever you need. He invites us to run to Him in our needs. I love how this is depicted in Psalm 50. We don't have have time to read this tonight, but let me remind you of a few verses there. I love this. In Psalm 50, verse 12, this is what God says. If I were hungry... I I would not tell you, for the world is mine, right? If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. What are you going to do about it, right? And plus, the world and all of its fullness are mine. And so he goes on to say in verse 15, So call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Church, do you have needs? Are you grieving Are you lonely? Are you hurt? Are you afraid? Are you concerned? Are you poor? Are you sick? Are you struggling with slavery? Run to Him. He has no need. He just has abundance. And He gives that we would glorify Him. Could it be that God puts us in desperately needy circumstances where all of our resources run dry in the hope that we'll discover that our God is a fountain to all who come and ask for a drink. We turn time and time again to the puddles, and he is the fountain. But Israel didn't care about this. They didn't care. They, had, they didn't recognize him as the fountain of living water. They were much more concerned with their broken cisterns, right? You remember Jeremiah? The broken cisterns that could hold no water. And they said, give us a king anyways. Only fools ignore God's warnings. Which is why only fools sin. We have a fourth scene in this text, and that is sinned outcome. In verses 22 on, uh, God tells Samuel, God gives him some tragic instructions. He says, just give the people what they want. You want a king? God says, fine, you'll have a king. And God does, God did what he does so often. He judged them simply by turning them over to their desires. I remember when uh, my daughter, Karis, was two years old. I laughed about this today, my goodness. I remember when she was two years old, and uh, she and I were in the kitchen. She likes to stand on a chair and, you know, take part in, 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 in kitchen activities. And, and I was making some scrambled eggs, and I love lots of pepper on my scrambled eggs, right? And I was making some eggs, and... You know, Kiaris wasn't super helpful in, you know, the hot skillet part of it, but she was manning the salt and the pepper shakers, okay? And uh, she kept trying to lick the pepper shaker, does anybody do this? Does anyone have kids that do this? Is it just us, right? She was trying to lick the top of the pepper shaker, and it was, it was one of those things where, you know, if you have a pepper shaker long enough, there'll be like pepper dust on the top, and there's like a bunch of this pepper dust. And she kept trying to lick this, and so I, you know, I'm a great dad, you know, and so I was like, Karis, don't lick the pepper shaker, okay? Don't, don't lick the pepper shaker. So what she do? She tries again to lick the pepper. I said, Karis, stop. Don't lick the pepper shaker. Karis, Trust me. I'm your father. I love you. I'm significantly wiser than you. And though I love pepper, you don't want to lick the pepper shaker, right? Trust me. Just stop it. And finally, you know what I said? All right. I can solve this problem. I'm a guy. Guys solve problems, right? Sure enough, I let her lick the pepper shaker. Haley was not here for this. And, uh, and sure enough... Out of that little rebellious tongue came a cry, right? Now, I would argue that it was a loving thing for me to do, a loving way for me to teach my daughter of the folly of licking pepper shakers. You see, so often that's what God does for us and as his children. He turns us over to the pain and the emptiness and the disaster of our godless solutions in the hope that we'll come to see the beauty of the king and that we'll learn to trust his laws simply because we trust his character. That's what I want so much for my daughter. I I want her to learn that I love her and so that she can trust my rules. I want her to see that I'm not trying to keep fun things from her, but really I'm after her happiness. I'm after her joy. see, friends, the kingship of God is not a burden. His laws are not a wet blanket on the party of your life. God is after your joy. He is after your happiness. So what's happening, I think, in this chapter is that Samuel in this text is exposing the heart of sin. Our sin is the dethroning of God. It's a coup. It's, It's the forcing, it's the removal of him as the Lord of our lives. And yet this passage reminds us that the only alternative to living under God's rule is slavery. It's the only alternative. Sin is slavery. Big sin, medium sin, little sin. It's all slavery. Sin never gives to you, ever. Sin only takes from you, it taxes you. Whenever we sin, we must give away something good in exchange for its dark pleasure. It's always a transaction. It's always a fuller joy for a lesser joy. And God in His sovereignty and in His mercy is letting Israel experience this. Now now what I want to do for a moment is to pause and I want to try to make a little bit more specific application. Now, obviously, as you know, with God's Word, there are, there are 10,000 ways to apply its principles to our lives. And, you know, each one of us is, is wired a little bit differently. We have different sin struggles, different maturities, different fears, right? And so, you know, these truths are all applied to us a little bit differently. But, but I want to try to make a more specific application. And I'm feeling daring. So, so we've, already, we've already seen that Israel's sin in rejecting God as king was rejecting God as being good, right? That they were rejecting his strength. They were rejecting God as helper. That they forgot about his power and came up with some worldly solution without God. And now we've seen that these worldly solutions, that whenever we do this, they always have worldly consequences. Namely, slavery. Slavery. So let's think for a moment of how this could apply to American politics in 2016. As a nation, we have problems, right, and I think we could probably agree on that. I haven't met anyone who would disagree that the current state of our nation is at least precarious, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. And depending on how you view things, there are a number of serious issues facing our nation. Immigration, economy, health care, women's rights, the sanctity of the unborn, religious liberties, racial tensions between the police and minority neighborhoods, a massive national deficit, the power of, to appoint Supreme Court justices who apparently have developed a lot of power, right? Now, I think that many voters would simply say that, you know, we feel like our basic American freedoms are being threatened. I think most people, no matter what side of the aisle, would would agree with that on some level, depending on how the election goes. But this year seems different, doesn't it? It seems more intense. It seems like the political fervor that's headed into this election is at an all-time high. People are passionate and angry and anxious. And the less than ideal candidates that we have are, have only heightened the tension in our country. Now our nation is no stranger to challenges. We faced challenges before time and time again and in the short history of our nation we have faced and overcome many bitter challenges and in most cases have enjoyed a great measure of success many times that was because of providence and and wise political leadership now i'm not suggesting that america should become a theocracy right ruled only by god or even that we should become a monarchy and appoint a king though it's not sounding like that bad of an idea these days right and i'm not saying that our political problems have strictly spiritual solutions But what I do want to do is ask you this. With just a few days until election day, where is your hope? Where is your heart looking for security? We will never have a chance, like Israel, to reject God as the literal king and say, Give us a literal king. But who rules your heart? Where are you looking for security? Are you looking to a certain candidate? Are you hoping in a certain political party or a certain vision for the future of America? What do you trust for the security of your life and your happiness? Is it an insurance policy? Is it a retirement plan? Is it some marketable skill? Who do you trust in? Okay, God, right? Or, you know, this is church. Come on. I mean, we don't say God, right? We trust in God. I mean, I mean practically. Functionally. Who are you trusting in? Where does your heart go to find rest? Is your heart in turmoil? Are you, are you anxious within you because of the political climate? Where does your heart go to find rest? That's your king. Wherever you go to find rest, that's your king. If it's the hope in some sort of political outcome, that is your king. And if it's not God, then you're guilty Of the same thing as Israel. Dethroning God and replacing him with some other thing. D.A. Carson said recently, If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. I wonder... For far too long, American evangelicals have placed an inordinate amount of hope in our political influence and in the, in the power of our conservative voting bloc. Perhaps we've been guilty of seeking worldly solutions without properly accounting for God's power, and now God's just given us what we want. A little Washington King. You know, sure, on November 8th, I will give a candidate my vote for president of the United States. But I'm not going to give him or her any of my hope. None. I'll give my vote, but I will not give my hope. My hope, my security, my king is the Lord. My heart trusts In him. So, what do I have to fear? What do I have to fear? Run to him this political season. He rules. This brings us to the last scene in this text. It's really a scene that we're looking forward to. You see, God gave Israel a king. Before his time, he gave them a king. And for centuries, they would be plagued by a series of kings who would just take and take and take and take. But what's amazing about the power of God is that he isn't derailed by human sin. Israel needed a king and God promised a king. But they needed a king of God's own choosing. They needed a king who would follow God's law. They needed a king not like the kings of the nations, but they needed a king like God himself. They needed a king who was after God's own heart. Truly after God's own heart. Not an adulterer, murderer king. They needed one who wouldn't sin or wouldn't die. They needed a king who was generous, not one who would take and take and take. They needed a king who was humble, not tall, not proud, not puffed up. And that king would come. But to see this king, you have to fast forward until you come not to a palace, but to a manger. You'll know you're in the right place because you'll see kingly gifts. They'll be there. And here you'll find the true king, the king of God's own choosing, one who is from the line of David in the town of Bethlehem. But this king was an adulterous murderer like the last king of God's own heart. This king followed the law perfectly. He didn't take. He washed feet. He came not to be served but to serve And he wasn't proud. He came in on a donkey. And he mounted a cross. To pay for the wicked. Idolatrous sin. That his people chose over him. Time and time again. Church this king. Is Jesus. The king of the Jews. But just as. This king was rejected in Samuel 8. The king of the Jews was also rejected. May we not be guilty of the same in our life or in our daily decisions. Friends, every one of us will choose a king to place on the throne of our hearts. Every one of us has something or someone who is actively ruling in our hearts. So who will it be? Will it be yourself? Will it be some candidate? Will it be some little pleasure? Or will it be Jesus, the crucified King of the Jews? I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and as we enter in just to a brief time of reflection... Go before the Lord and bear your heart to Him. Whatever is, is on your heart, whatever is anxious on you, just take it to the Lord. Ask that the Spirit of God would be so kind to reveal to you any worldly solutions that you're running to over Christ. And repent. Put them away and choose Christ over some smaller thing. Let me also invite you now to pray for our nation. The problems in our nation are real and they're significant. In many ways, we have good reason to be anxious. But only God can carry those burdens. Pray for our country. Pray for this election. And pray that you would place your trust in God. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that we can come before you confessing our sins, not fearing death, but expecting mercy. So we say with Hannah that our hearts exalt in the Lord. Our strength, our horn is exalted in the Lord. Our mouths, the mouths of our enemies deride because of your great salvation. So Father, we see that there is none like you. There is no rock like you like our God. So let us be a people who talk no more so very proudly, and let not arrogance come from our mouths, for we acknowledge that you are a God of knowledge, and by you actions are weighed. Give strength to your King, and establish him forever. We thank you for him. We pray in his name, Christ the King. Amen. Church, you may stand and go in peace.